0: If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow and or give a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I hope you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it, because word of mouth is the best way for me to grow the show. Remember to share this podcast on social media to spread the word, hashtag Adoptee Land. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a donation to keep the show going at patreon.com forward slash Your contribution allows me to present a weekly episode free of advertisement and is greatly appreciated to add a valuable resource to the adoption community. Thank you so much for being here. My next guest is an adoptee, who is a writer and published author, among many other wonderful things. The both of us agree 100% that the public in general needs to hear and read the words of adult adoptees. I met her under the pen name of Suzanne Gilbert, which is the name given to her at birth. The name given upon her adoption is Michelle Kriegman. In this episode, Suzanne will share being in reunion for decades, solidly committed to the adoption community and how she has navigated her lived experience in adoption land. Allow me to introduce you to someone I've known for years through social media and feel like I've met her in person. I'm thrilled that we've managed to stay in touch all this time and now you will get the opportunity to hear her words. I welcome Suzanne, also known as Michelle. Suzanne, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. How's it going today? It is a beautiful day. It's lightening up out, so it's a lovely day. Same here. Things are going really well here in Nashville, and I know you are in New Jersey, right? The Garden State, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I've had the opportunity to talk to a couple of adoptees from New Jersey, so I'm just equally glad that you said yes to this conversation. So I wanted to start with the name Bonnie Upshaw that was given to me by my birth mother. I, pretty I, name. I learned that in reunion. Yeah, I really like that name. And so when you and I had a opportunity to talk last week, I did not know that Suzanne Gilbert is your birth name. hmm Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so your name given upon adoption is different. You want to talk about it?
1: Yeah, that was one of the nice presents that came from reunion and my birth mother calls me Suzanne. So it feels legitimate to me, but legally, I am Michelle Craigman. You know, go back and look at my writing and my reporting, it was as Michelle Craigman, but about seven years ago, you know, my day job was working in corporate cybersecurity You know, I wanted to be taken seriously. I thought I wouldn't be if I started letting people know that I wrote fiction and that I was talking about something as personal as adoption. So I hit on the idea of using Suzanne Gilbert as a pen name. I had started a novel called Tapioca Fire. Gosh, back like around, oh, I guess 1998, 2000. And then I put it down, just so much else was happening in my life. And then I picked it up again, but I decided I needed to keep it separate from my corporate job. And I, and Suzanne Gilbert just felt good to use. And by then I had begun, you know, encountering Korean adoptees that knew their birth names and they had their American names, but they used both or a com- some kind of combination. I thought, I wonder how that'll feel. And over the seven years, I'm able, I was able to say things and write things as Suzanne that. Michelle Kriegman wasn't quite ready to say. So I answered a bow. There are people that call me Suzanne. There are people that call me Michelle. I was always more open with the Suzanne Gilbert side of my connections because i that's where I could be open about feelings and thoughts. So about a year ago I told people through a short video that's on my Facebook page that Suzanne and Michelle are one and the same. And then just about a month ago, I told people at a cybersecurity conference, like, hey, guys, by the way, I'm writing fiction now, and I have been for a while, and I, in the past, used the name Suzanne Gilbert. That, that was the, the brave part, because, you know, that's where we all wear suits, and we have our emotional armor, and we don't talk about things like adoption and family
0: quite the same way. Michelle Kriegman, on your bio says that you are a storyteller by nature. And so you go on to talk about the missing backstory. So wherever you want to start with your story and however much you want to share would be great.
1: (laughs) I almost want to start with your story
0: because (laughs) it woke me up.
1: A Chicago detective that waits and waits to, you know, find out her backstory. I kind of was that way too. I started it. ABC News and I worked for years on a Japanese morning show and I covered all sorts of stories but I didn't look into my own and what I kind of felt you you talked about kind of concern for your adoptive mom I certainly had that Um, from when I was 24 to when she passed in my mid-30s my adoptive mom was fighting the same cancer that years earlier had led to her having a hysterectomy in her 20s so bringing up adoption felt like bringing up death and cancer and hysterectomies. And I was so focused on her story. There was no room for me to want to bring that stuff up um, at that time.
0: Yeah, when you shared then, that with me, I was like, wow, our stories are so similar in that regard. Yeah. And then, <laughs> <laughs> what is it? A man Plans God Last? Mm-hmm. So
1: that was where I was at, and then I get a call from my birth mother. <laughs> so, yeah, it wasn't my timing, but maybe it was the right timing. When I was pregnant with my son, I had gone to the adoption agency. It's been shaped in New York City. And I just thought, well, you know, I'll get records of medical information. I owe my kids that, if nothing else. And I got two surprises. One of them was finally finding out. About my backstory. I, I was raised hearing about my birth mother's ethnicity. It matched um, one of my adoptive parents, but I, for my birth father, I was told, well, and, and we don't know, or something Western European. It, it always had the, the ring of some somebody fibbing. but I was a good kid. I, I didn't ask questions with, in that setting. What I found out was my when I went to the agency to get my non-identifying information, they said, you know, we may have information that your adoptive parents were not given, because I was born before 1978, and they said in 1978, ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, changed our policy, and before then, it was policy that social workers, if they could whitewash you, they would erase your Native American or First Peoples heritage when they shared what your background was with your adoptive parents, usually white adoptive parents. You know, if if you can pass, we want you to pass. And I certainly have enjoyed white privilege. You know, I've never experienced discrimination for being part Cherokee and part Mohawk, but I've experienced loss for not knowing that. And the loss might be the, the culture, yes. But it's also being raised by knowing not to ask questions, you know, and knowing to defer to the important secret in the room and not ask those questions. To find that out was something to process. Then the other piece of news when I went for my non-identifying information was that someone, they wouldn't say who, they said a biological family member has been trying to contact you. Mm. And I was like, oh, who is it? Yes, I want to speak to them. Like, no, 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 we need something in writing. And there was a fee. And I don't remember what the fee was, but it's like, like, you probably get this, but like most people don't have to pay to talk to their parent. You know what I mean? Right. And it was actually funny. They had my information. They passed it on to this person. It turned out this person was living overseas. It was my birth mother. And what they had in their records came much later, and that was letters. And I only got the letters months later. But I got this call from my birth mother, and it turned out to be exactly when my adoptive mother had dropped by the house. And neither of us were ready for it. I didn't think I'd be getting a phone call just like that. And it was kind of interesting. Her voice is a lot like mine, except she's got a bit of a British accent. So that was strange, something so familiar and so foreign, kind of all at the same time, coming over the phone. Mm. And, um, yeah, uh, through that, and my poor adoptive mom, she had come by with a storybook to read to my older kids, and I was hearing them when I'm on the phone for the very first time with my birth mother, and I was saying, keep reading, turn the page, keep reading, so I knew she was listening. <laughs> Yeah, right? This <laughs> is not what you want. You don't want your adoptive parents there probably the first time you speak to a birth parent. Right. That's what
0: happens,
1: right. right? that. Um, yeah. <laughs> very awkward.
0: It, it, yeah.
1: It's very awkward. It doesn't mean we don't love them and they're not welcome at some point, but it's just so
0: much to process. How um, long were you on the phone with your birth mother when that happened? Oh. Um, It was less time than it takes
1: to read a storybook because my mom in the other room was reading a storybook to my kids,
0: Mm. and
1: I was done before they were done. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a fancy way of saying, I don't know, it it felt timeless, and I don't even remember now, this is um, 30 years ago, I don't remember what she said or what I said, but I remember her voice. And I love her voice. I spoke to her yesterday, just really briefly. And I yeah. I was hearing a voice and for me it was beyond words because there was something familiar about it.
0: So how was the relationship over the years with her? Probably nothing short of a roller coaster. Roller coaster sounds more dramatic.
1: It was it was more like, um, Always being surprised, always being surprised. So for example, she was about to go to Spain and she said, you know, I had your number. I figured you wouldn't be able to reach me. I will call you. You know, I wanted to call you before I I leave in the morning. So she was calling me. I was in the thick of motherhood. I was pregnant and my adoptive mom and I spoke for a little bit after this phone call. We both said, Oh, she's going to be on the next flight. Like, we'll just expect her to show up tomorrow. She's not going to Spain. Mm-hmm. You know, I was her only child. So if you have one child and they're out there and you now and you haven't known where they are and you've been reaching out, she did to the adoption agency to make contact and then you finally do, you're not going to Spain for a month.
0: Mm-hmm. We knew that. Right.
1: Except my adoptive mom and I were wrong. She went to Spain for a month. She kept putting off coming to visit in ways that for me were like beyond words. Um, she would schedule to come for my birthday. One time she canceled last minute because she got a free ticket to go see a guru named Mother Mira, I think it was in Germany. So she was going to jet off to Germany instead, and I had to tell my kids, "Sorry, you, you know your birth grandmother's not coming after all." You know, I got to play the the mom who's unruffled by it. But that changed something. The earth shifted, you know, when she did that, those three years. And it shifted for my kids, too. She's never been grandma to them. And they've actually been pretty hostile because I think they were hurt. They were losing one grandma, their adoptive grandma. They didn't know their father's mother. She had already passed away before they were born. And then so finally they're thinking, oh, I think it's some level, you know, Other kids have two grandmas, why shouldn't we? And so they were ready to welcome her, and she was doing whatever she needed to do. And so that, it kind of drifted off. And then we've come back together. When I was going through my divorce, she was my number one support. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she was there for me in a way that my adoptive mother couldn't, because my adoptive mother, interestingly, had been divorced. And I think she just didn't want to talk about it I don't know if that was a reflection on her marriage to my adoptive dad or not, that she needed to be away from all that. And also she was fighting cancer. She had her own battle. And so my birth mother was number one person in my corner during that. So I guess it could have been a relationship that ended because of the three years when she didn't come to visit. And yet here we are. And I spoke to her yesterday, 30 years later. So I, I, that's what I mean by I'm always surprised. It mm. ain't over till it's over, you know?
0: Right. So let's talk a little bit about your paternal side. Ah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because the series I wrote
1: is called The Birth Father's Glove, And, you know, I said before, I, like, I wasn't ready. My adoptive mom wasn't ready, and yet the call came. And... Um, with my first father, that was like my adventure. That was where I had, you know, what they call agency, where I made the decision, okay, I'm going to search. I'm going to do the digging. I'm I'm calling the timing as much as any one adoptee can call the timing. So that, in some ways, feels m- more like my story. And it's really interesting. He's like this ghost that was there before I found him and has been there ever since. And what I mean is sometimes in in the adoption reunion world, we talk about ghost kingdoms. And that was a term that Betty Jean Lifton introduced, I guess, probably in the 1970s. And she talked about every adoptee carrying with them a ghost kingdom. That actually came from a writer, Isaac the Singer. And he said, everyone carries within them a ghost kingdom their own cemetery, their own um, garden of ghosts. Our ghosts never leave us. We may travel, but in, in his case he was saying our grandmothers, our late spouse, our lost child, our you know our parents from they pass. they're always with us. And then Betty Jean took I think she the Singer's words and she applied it to adoptees. You know, we have this ghost kingdom, of birth family, and for some people it's birth country. That we carry with us at some level. And so, my birth father, he was always a ghost because I knew my birth mother's ethnicity, but he was always a mystery because I knew that for whatever reason, I wasn't being told what his background was. You know, and there was a reason, and it was what social work policy was towards children of indigenous ancestry that Mm -hmm. was the policy up to 1978 Mm -hmm. so he was a ghost but I found him I found him partly by doing a lot of digging and there were a lot of funny stories because there were people that were really helpful along the way and some that weren't I eventually had to hire um, a detective um, who actually grew up in the town. I live in Morristown. His name was Joe Collins. He helped he helped something like 3,000 family members find each other.
0: Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. How long had he been doing so, that
1: work? Um, that I'm not sure. I think he did it over, I'm going to give you a, a wrong number, but it was would have been over 10 years. Mm-hmm. And And then he did something interesting. He switched to helping families build um, homes for the homeless or people who had unstable housing in Guatemala. And that became something where adopted families could bring their um, family member who came from Guatemala and they could try to do a search. And whether they found Guatemalan birth family or not, through Joe's organization, they could give back and connect by building these houses that would leave a mark for the good in Guatemala. And so I, I turned him into a character in one of my books, too. So, mm-hmm. of course, right? Yeah. That's too good a story not to. Um, so he, he found my birth father, partly because he knew someone in the police department, and you're not supposed to do this um, under um, RICO laws, but he ran a DMV check without a court order. The reason you're not supposed to do it under anti racketeering laws is because that was how the mob would break the FBI's witness protection program, you could run a DMV check and find someone who was in witness protection. And that's exactly how Joe Collins found a lot of birth fathers.
0: If you had a name
1: or an address or something, you could piece it together. And then there was a birth father who was a policeman who was paying it forward to adoptees. And former foster people wasn't just adoptees by helping them do these DMV, by doing these DMV searches that would help them find their birth fathers. And that was just, to me, that was that, that's another kind of reverberation. You know, birth fathers are never... We're almost never part of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, they're kind of the silent member of the triad. If we talk about an adoption triad of birth mother, adoptive parents, and adoptee, but there's that other person out there, and this policeman was one of them. I called, I, I had my birth father's number that I got from Joe. I called him. And I said, you know, are you sitting down? He said, oh, you know, I already spoke to Joe, and I always knew I was going to get this phone call someday. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice.
0: Right. So, so he was really he, glad to hear from you. He was really mixed.
1: And, and he was really mixed. I think he was relieved. I think he was glad. I think he was guilty. Like, it stirred up. Well, let me back up, Jennifer, and I'll kind of tell you the story. And it so it, he was enthusiastic. He he wanted when Joe spoke to him, you know, he's like, "Yeah, here's my number." We met later that week. So I spoke to him on a Sunday, and we met Wednesday, and it was Ash Wednesday. So that's like an anniversary for me. Whenever I see people with the Ash crosses, I remember the day I met my birth father. Mm. I took the bus into the city. He met me with a bouquet of white carnations and we went out for brunch and we talked. What I found out later was that night he called up my brother Tiernan and said, Let's go get a scotch. And <laughs> <laughs> two of them went out to a bar and he told he told Tiernan about me and that I existed. But he didn't tell his wife and he didn't tell his daughter. Mm. And he swore, Karen into secrecy, don't tell your mom, which is really interesting because his wife knew about me. And in fact, this came out about a month later. He had said, and this is true, that this is before Roe v. Wade in the mid-1970s, before the mid-1970s when Roe v. Wade um, was ruled. And they went to two illegal abortionists. They called them abortionists back then. One in New York, Fort Lee, and one kind of near the George Washington Bridge in New York City. For whatever reason, both my birth mother and my birth father kind of hemmed and hawed, and they weren't going to get married, but they weren't going to move forward with the abortion. I've asked my birth mother about that, and she just says, oh, I don't want to second guess myself. My birth father said, I think at some level you were a choice. And he said, you know, when we were at breakfast, the one time we met, I'm pro-choice and Michelle, you were a choice. He also mentioned that his fiance at the time, who was not my birth mother, said, you know, this is your child. You can't give this child away. We'll raise the baby. My birth mother didn't want that. She was not comfortable with that. And she said she would place it for adoption. And she did. And so my birth father, until he told he, he, he told his fiancée, who became his wife and then his widow, about me. But he never told her about the reunion. He told his son, my brother, and then for him to secrecy. And what's really interesting is my father, Bill Ray, was familiar with Betty Jean Lifton's writings. Oh, he had read read her. He had read. He had read. So he wants to keep everything a secret about the reunion, but he read her writings. He actually had been a teacher at a private school that her two kids attended. So he became aware of her writings because he taught her kids. So I immediately called her when I get home and I say, you wouldn't believe this. She didn't know he was a birth father. And she said, oh, Bill, 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 he was this wonderful teacher. And, and that was kind of gratifying. It was my reason to start to get to know Betty Jean Liston.
0: So let me be clear. Who did you call? You called Betty Jean Liston. Yeah. Oh, wow. Betty Jean Liston. Yeah. <laughs> That's because cool. She knew him right. as this teacher for
1: her kids in middle school.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, one of her books, and, Twice Born, was one of the first I picked up a, a decade ago. And it was was so instrumental in helping me to be encouraged, you know, being new to the community and also wanting to be in reunion at that time. I
1: read that after I heard from my birth mother. So that was, that book meant a lot to me too, Jennifer. It was sort of like, oh, there's a community out there. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not the only person, you know, who's adopted. I'm not the only person, to which I do intellectually, but it just feels like so, such a funny, isolated condition to be in and then to find that there's a community out there. Yeah, and he and Bill had read Twice Born, her memoir. Then the kicker is he had been a graphic designer. That's had my birth mother. And over the years, he kind of changed jobs. And when I met him, he was director of fiscal services for special needs adoptions and foster care for the city of New York.
0: Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's so
1: funny. how. Yeah, I later told my adoptive dad, you know, he spends his days writing checks to adoptive dad, and my dad's kind of like that. And, and just the idea of how a birth father's life might play out the way mine did, where he kind of steps in, steps out, steps in, and then finds himself completely involved in adoption and foster care later in life, was really an interesting backstory to have.
0: Right. You know, we talked a little bit about synchronicities in our adoption stories. And so do you have one you want to share? Synchronicities. Oh,
1: I I won't call that synchronicity, but there are other things that are. Like, I won't call that synchronicity because I think there was some intention in his gravitating back towards adoption for him Mm -hmm. to... At one point in his youth, being willing to raise me and then have me be let go. And then I don't—I think he resolved it impersonally by becoming this director in the adoption and foster care system okay. for New York City. Mm-hmm. But there is a synchronicity. This is something else. And you and I have talked, and I love your story. I don't know if I shared this, but this is my Most recent chapter in the birth father story, and it happened this past year in 2021, started a little bit before it started before COVID. My kids had gotten me an ancestry DNA as a present at the end, you know, for Christmas slash Hanukkah. I kind of put off taking it, and then I finally did, and (laughs) I found out that I had a sister who was an adoptee. And I don't mean a sister like, oh, you're an adoptee. You're part of my tribe. I love you, sister. I mean a biological sister through our birth father, Bill Ray. And she was looking. She had no kids. She was a widow. You know, she was alone. And she was looking for family. I was so excited that she's there. And probably what I brought to it was a little bit extra. And this this is where the synchronicity starts to come in. I have an adopted sister who has chosen to be estranged for me for two decades, and that's actually I now view as a blessing. She has mental health issues, and so does her birth mother, and violence issues. Neither of them have really been able to get a handle on that. So the, I think this estrangement has turned out to be for the good, but it's still a loss. And it turned out, uh, my sister's, my adopted sister's birthday is November 20th. It turned out, I, so I, I found out, and it's going to sound like I'm skipping around because I don't want to do spoilers too soon. I found out that I had this biological sister who was looking for family. She was also adopted out. We were related through the patrilineal line, the birth father bill. And I was trying. I did, you know, a lot of us do this, where you wind up calling fifteen strangers because they might be the right phone number, and that whole awkward thing. And that's what I did. Wasn't finding anything. This person, um, Melissa, was not answering through Ancestry DNA's website. You know, I reached out to people that could have been cousins. Didn't hear back. And finally, kind of on a whim, I did an image search on Google, and. I found an image that looked kind of like her photo on Ancestry DNA, and I click on it, and it's a GoFundMe site for her funeral.
0: Mm.
1: And she had died on November twentieth. Mm. And so this is like November twentieth is you know just a regular old day for most people, but that's my sister day. That's Michelle Pregmans personal sister day. It's my, you know, it's one sister's birthday and the other's date of death. And what I can do for Lisa is um, she was raised Jewish. I was raised Jewish. Neither of us are totally born Jewish, but whatever. It's how we live faith. It's how we relate to God. So in the Jewish tradition, you say a prayer called the Kaddish on the anniversary of someone's death. And so on November 20th, I say this prayer for my sister and yeah. she because she didn't have she was a widow she was childless there was no one in the tradition that would be saying Miss Kaddish for her but I can do that that much I can give her back you know
0: I'm sorry to hear that and at the same time I'm like appreciating the November 20th date and mm-hmm. yeah the, the prayer you say on that day did you call it the sister prayer?
1: Well, it, it's it's actually a regular part of the liturgy. It's called the Kaddish, which means sanctification. But I, yeah, it's my sister prayer. It yeah. now has more meaning. Like everybody says it, if you go to a temple or synagogue, anywhere in the world, any flavor of Judaism, it's a prayer in Aramaic. You know, and so it's a pretty universal thing. But for me, it's now personal. It has a... a a deeper meaning
0: or more individual meaning. And it's my sister prayer. Yes. It feels so sacred for
1: both sisters. Yeah. For both
0: sisters. That's what I'm feeling through what you just shared. I appreciate you sharing that story. And sometimes I sit with things so much longer, you know, and they, they just develop a powerful meaning for me as a part of your story. Yeah. And
1: it, We could call it a coincidence, but I like your word better, that it's synchronicity. And what's really good about knowing other adoptees is so often there is that synchronicity. And if you want, like, I want to believe, oh, that I I love to say, oh, it's meant to be. And I have faith and I do pray. And so I think, okay, okay. There, there is an extra meaning to November 20th for me. But then there's, there's, there's other pieces to that story that matter for, for me as a mother, not just as a sister. Unfortunately, Melissa died of COPD or what we used to call emphysema. And she was wickedly addicted to nicotine, people tell me. You know, when I shared that with my kids who had bought me the Ancestry DNA kit in the first place, my son, who had been hiding that he'd been smoking for nine years, decides to quit. And in three days, he was able to quit. And he says he literally felt withdrawal, but he did it. And I'm mm. thinking, Melissa, you are such a good aunt. You know, <laughs> You saved your nephew. Thank you. Thank you. He doesn't smoke now.
0: Wow. That's um Yeah. That's a blessing. I I think of how what is possible in reunion and that kinda reminds me of yeah, she's not here, Lisa's not here, but somehow she was able to give a gift to your son. Yes.
1: Yeah. You know, maybe she saved him from C O P. D. Right. Just by putting her story out there so I could find her And my son could learn her story and learn from it. You know, yeah. Um, And actually, you know, that's the cool thing about this community. We're not guaranteed that we're going to find something, but if we have the goodwill to put information out there, good things can happen and come back for us. Unfortunately, you know, I didn't get onto ancestry DNA in time to meet her while she was alive but I'm so grateful that she did the DNA testing and put that information out there. And absolutely, you know, there, there are birth fathers. There's one, I thank him in the acknowledgements for my second book, um, from a desert city by the sea. And I know him cause he's in our group here in New Jersey that meets monthly and um, he's done amazing things. He's testified, in the legislature in both New Jersey and New York saying birth fathers don't want secrecy and anonymity. It's in the best interest of the children we um, put up for adoption that they have the same right to see their original birth certificate. In some way, I feel like when people put themselves out there in a world that had been sealed to truth and reunions, good things happen. And so I turned his story, I turned him into the character Clay in the story. And it's fiction because this birth father, despite everything he's given, and he's done
0: DNA testing
1: in every possible, you know, DNA, retail DNA um, company so that if someone had who's related, they can find him. He still hasn't found his child. But the novella, I make up a different ending where he does, where search angels help him find his child. And he gets some answers
0: too. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you shared that. And before we get to you being a published author, I do want to ask you, do you have your original birth certificate since New Jersey recently (laughs) changed their law? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Um, Over the years, I've written letters. I
1: wrote letters to Governor Christie. I was there in January 2017 when they announced the, the first two people to receive their original birth certificate, it was wonderful. I applied right away. And you know what I got back? Sorry, cannot be located. Mm. <laughs> what it could be. I was told by my adoptive dad that the adoption was in New Jersey, but I was born in New York. and in 2017 new york still had sealed records and so this is something i put back on the shelf because you know for a lot of us like adoption and search and reunion is something that we kind of take down off the shelf for a period of time but we might need to for many good reasons need to put it back up on the shelf for a while so 2017 that's what i found out and new york still had sealed records and i just focused on other things in my life but in 2018 It was incremental, just like Colorado was incremental. First, they had legislation that gave the majority of adoptees access, and then they got complete access. Um, You know, another set of people kind of built on the first set of laws. Okay. Oh, I haven't got it yet. It's the answer. Oh, my gosh.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad that New York finally came around as well, and Mm -hmm. so I'm sure it won't be. It won't be long when you pick that back up, and and maybe you'll come back on and tell me what that felt like. But I got it in it. New
1: York State. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, tell me what has been the most rewarding thing about being a published author? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to give you the wrong answer
1: because you're asking you're asking me about being published, and I'm going to give you the wrong answer to that. <laughs> <I don't, laughs> and I'm going to I'm going to steal words from my friend Jamie Frevoletti. she writes under her own name, but she also writes all the recent Robert Ludlow novels you read are actually by my friend Jamie, because he passed away a while ago, so it's, you know, his estate hired her, and she she kind of said, you know, it's kind of the golden time when you get to sit and write, and you don't have to worry about the business of writing and the business of being published. And I've always, I started out in the business of producing and writing stories. So I guess starting when I was a freshman in college, I worked for Maine Public Radio. I worked for ABC News in Boston when I was in college. During the school year, I worked for ABC News then when I was in grad school in Tokyo, Japan, at their bureau in Tokyo. I worked then for a Japanese network through most of my 20s called TV, and I worked regularly the, the bread and butter was working on their morning show and we regularly had stories from New York city, but I also did things for other networks like NHK, which is their public broadcasting and TV Asahi. So it was always a business. It was always dealing with the executive producer back in Tokyo and you were always on a deadline. The morning show, our segment was live. So it was, you were always scrambling. You were not trying for perfection. And then um, when I left that, I, I got into magazine writing. Around the time my birth mother and I were first in touch, I was also pregnant. But I was really into the realization that, oh, my children are my first blood relatives. And I wrote for a lot of childbirth magazines and parenting magazines. And it was always about deadlines and word count and structure and then edits and revisions. And now with the starting when I picked up Tapioca Fire, the first novel, it was fine to just no one was waiting on me, really. And I got to just be creative and love the words and love the characters and then realize I hadn't presented the character in the quickest, most depictive way that I could so that people would understand, you know, this protagonist the way I did. Um, I'd always been involved in the production and the publishing of stories, whether it was radio or TV or magazines and getting into doing novels and novellas where there's finally that golden time where you can be a little bit of an introvert and just write, you know? I don't know if that answered your question
0: or not. I think that writing, which is something I've always enjoyed doing was one thing, and publishing was like something else. <laughs> you know, to be out there so public, like I made a decision I would be open, honest, and public in the adoption community many years ago. And and yet it's, I still feel so vulnerable just thinking about my published work being out there. You know, like I still think about it like, uh-oh, you know. But it's been rewarding because I have met so many people because I published, they, they picked up my book and it spoke to them in some way. And then they reached out to me. Yes. I'm thinking of someone in particular who we've become such good friends because she read my book because it was out there. And so I do know it's, it's been a rewarding experience. A little scary, it's, you know, a little scary. It's, scary. <laughs> it's it's worth it. Before fiction, I,
1: the international was the International Journal of Childbirth Educators published a book, not a book. I'm sorry, an article. I wrote. Yeah, the International Journal of Childbirth Educators published an article where I wrote about issues for adoptees or relinquishes, which is what I like to call them, and what might be going on with us that isn't going on with other expectant mothers when we are in pregnancy and labor and childbirth. And that was the first time I got that kind of feedback where people tracked me down and phoned me to say, and, and I remember there's someone from Georgia, and I'm up in New Jersey, saying, that's it, that's it. And, and I titled it, When the Unborn Gives Birth. Like, unlike many people, we don't grow up hearing about our moms being rushed to the hospital and what labor was like. Right. Um, and It awakens things for our mothers, our adoptive
0: mothers, too glad you said that love, because that's you know. a powerful time. Like I'm thinking about the nine months, you know, carrying my son and then birth and giving birth. And I could share that with him. You know, I could tell him how like my water broke and nothing happened for like the doctor. You know, <laughs> like
1: was like, don't you hate that? I, <laughs> it yeah. always takes five minutes on TV. I don't
0: know why it takes
1: so long in real
0: life. <laughs> yeah but I have this story that you know I could share with him. I have shared with him different things um leading up to his presence in the world right and mm-hmm. And for adoptees, we don't we don't have we have no most of us don't ever learn what any of that was like like I love Motown right Motown music a lot a lot of people do of course uh but for oh, yeah. some reason, I think I bet my birth mother listened to this one particular. Diana Ross and the Supreme song because I just love hearing it, you know, like things like that. I wish, <laughs> yes, she could. T- you know, I did play that like all the time during the I, the time I carried you. You know, just just some stories about the time.
1: Oh, that synchronicity,
0: yeah, yeah. And my brother has he has confirmed a few things, but it's still not my story because he he's only hearing it from someone like second, you know, like like it's been sent to him or given to him or said to him, but it wasn't directly said to me from our mother, you know.
1: Yeah, that, being, that story is being handed down from the woman who carried us, what it was like before you were born and what it was like on the night you were born or the right. morning you were born and just all yeah. of that. So actually, you know, I never did get my OBC. That, that might be another chapter now that New York State has restored access. But what I did get before HIPAA, and HIPAA's kind of shut this avenue down for adoptees, was I knew my birth mother's name. I knew my birth name, Suzanne Gilbert. And I knew what hospital I was born at from my amended birth certificate. And I called them up and I asked for a record for Suzanne Gilbert. And they sent them to me. I don't know if it would be that easy now that HIPAA has been passed, especially the security rule, which is 1998, I think. In it, there is the story of my birth, hours of labor, what time she checked in. And there was something, I think it was out of wedlock or that, that was there. It was just strange because they called me baby girl Ray, which is my birth father's last name. But then they have this, and it's almost like its own story because at the end, it's discharged to social worker. Mm. And as a mom, I'm thinking of the, the baby in the hospital bed. My birth mother said she was told, no, she couldn't hold me because I was already adopted. She was discharged before I was. So I was there in the hospital. I had neonatal jaundice I guess so they keep you a few days under lamps to to help you get the bilirubin out of your body or whatever it is so I was there a few days after my birth mother had left and I had in my records that I was out of wedlock and then I was discharged to a social worker I I don't feel sorry for myself but I do think wow that's that's poignant that's poignant for that baby to be just there in the crib and
0: Mm-hmm. And to
1: anyone coming to look at my record, seeing my status out of wedlock, wow. And, yeah. but it could be worse. You know, it has been worse for some babies in human history. I'm here today. You know, and maybe there were nurses that, you know, tried extra hard to hold that baby that no one was coming to visit or see or, you know, welcome.
0: I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. Yeah. But when you got the documents, non-identifying information, Mm -hmm. were you connected? Did you get connected with the adoption community at that (laughs) point? That, yes. And actually, you know
1: what? Oh, Jennifer, you just made me think of another synchronicity.
0: Oh, good, um, good.
1: <laughs> yeah, when I I, I had gone to grad school in Japan. I spoke Japanese. I was working at Nippon TV for years, and I would take the bus back from the city, and one day I heard this person with an accent, on, like an American accent, speaking in Japanese to someone with a Slavic accent in Japanese. And back then, you know, East Coast United States, you didn't run into too many people speaking Japanese, so I got up and I went over and introduced myself. And the American, well, the American was Pam Hasegawa. And the um, Russian woman was a professor of physics at Nagoya University. And I've been to Nagoya a couple of times. And so I got to know Pam Hasegawa. And that's just kind of like this thread in my life, Pam Hasegawa thread. And,
0: yeah, no um, Pam. Yeah,
1: baby. Yeah,
0: so, yeah, everybody does
1: now. You know, everybody in our adoptee land, reunion land. But I just knew her as an American who could speak Japanese and she told me her husband was Japanese and they actually went to live in Japan for a while. And and then I kind of forgot it. And then I told one of my best friends about the phone call from my birth mother a couple years later. And she said, Oh, you know, I know someone who's adopted and she's really interested in adoption and changing the laws. Um, she used to be my downstairs neighbor who named Pam Hasegawa. <laughs> <laughs> so my friend Debbie got me back in touch with Pam, who I only knew as an American who spoke some Japanese. Right. Um, so there's synchronicity there. So, Oh my myself. gosh, I forgot the question, but it had something
0: yeah. to do with... with, with yeah, when you got support. connected with the adoption community, because I think... So, um, uh,
1: yeah, that was the connection, was really through Japan. I, I might not have reached out to her, but when I heard the name Pam, I was like, oh yeah, I, I know her, I've met her before. Right. And, and it was really through Pam that I got connected. Yeah, that yeah. would be it. That, that, that is the connection.
0: What's been the best thing about being connected? Oh gosh, so many um, things, isn't it? That's <laughs>
1: there's so much because yeah. I, I was the conversations, Jennifer. You know the conversations we can have. You're you're doing this podcast, and I love how you do it because it's not like an interrogation; it's a conversation. <laughs> and so I've been listening, and I'm hearing conversations. I'm like, yeah, and just thank you. to thank you, for yeah, that. thank you because as painful and confusing as the early part of my reunion was where I had this phone call with my birth mother and then she didn't visit and I didn't go see her in England because I had, first I was pregnant and then I had a newborn. I wasn't going to up and chase this person, but she would cancel on me and I started reading and that was the beginning of books coming out about adoption, Betty Jean Liston was alive and writing then, Betty Allen wrote, well, I almost consider a romance, it's so beautiful, but it's out of print now, a book called Mother Can You Hear Me? It talked about connecting with her birth mother, who was deaf, they couldn't speak, and mm-hmm. yet they communicated, and so that's a conversation, that's a legitimate conversation that Betty Allen described. So I've heard stories from birth fathers and other adoptees and birth mothers and adoptive parents and, you know, the notions of prospective adoptive parents that have come to listen because of all these conversations. I feel like I always come away smarter when I talk to somebody else. Maybe it's just because I'm dumb. So like I can only raise the bar if I talk to somebody else. Yeah. Just the conversations can be at conferences when we were meeting in person. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like, don't you have that? Like, you remember whether it's a conference or just getting together at a table with a bunch of other adoptees, it's like they get
0: it. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, you I, know? I, and, and every time I think of the conferences I've attended over the years, it's just, I almost can't put it into words what I feel immediately like being in the same room with other adoptees and just talking on the phone and recently I was talking with an adoptee and we were saying how we don't feel guarded necessarily like we do when we're thinking of adoptive parents like we we don't want you know should I say that an adoptive parent Mm. is around a birth parent is around but with adoptees, with being in a room with just adoptees, we don't feel like like you can relax and you can just say, and nobody's going to have a problem with anything you say. I mean, some of the things, some of the language people prefer over other things, but when it's just adoptees, it feels like a space. You just belong for one thing. You're not trying to fit in and you're not, I know I'm not feeling like I hope my birth parents and I'm sorry, birth family members are okay with what I just said. I hope they understand that you don't want to hurt feelings and things like that. We're getting our voice more and more to be in those other Mm -hmm. spaces and to speak our truth. But I know for me, the adoptee space, I'm just, I feel okay. I, I don't feel like I have to try to fit in and not hurt someone's feelings, you know, about my story.
1: Yes, um, and I feel that way. And these are and I'm everyone I'm thinking of when I'm think agreeing with you and thinking about these. These are people I love, people I mm-hmm, like,
0: mm-hmm. not just
1: love. And yet, you know, friends that have used a surrogate or donor conception. It's not just adoption. I feel I like I'm not going to talk about what relinquishment is or Mm -hmm. what it means to feel connected to my mother's voice, even on the phone, even with a British accent, you know, because I'm afraid that they will be hurt or feel less legitimate as parents. Mm -hmm. All of this stuff comes in. I don't know if that's an adoptee thing where um, we're we're trying so hard, like you were saying, to fit in Mm -hmm. that we don't want to rock the boat. Right, Because we don't really belong at some level, we might suspect. And so to keep sitting in, we're going to pull our punches. We're going to walk on eggshells sometimes with some people who are perfectly lovely people. It's not about them. It's about this legacy, I think, of relinquishment and then sealing the records, which kind of made it a darker thing
0: mm-hmm. um, than, mm-hmm. than I think
1: it needed to be.
0: Right. I agree Then it needed to be. Well, I have yeah. really enjoyed this conversation. And, and so is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to share in closing? Um, gosh, you know what? Let me say
1: one thing, because you were asking me about publishing. Mm-hmm. And I have, there's great stuff that's happened. One thing is indie publishing and hybrid publishing where people can get their work published without having connections in the New York City publishing world or Chicago or L.A. There's small presses. There's so many ways to get published. I really feel like we need to get our numbers up. And, And what I mean by that, Jennifer, is there are so many stories out there, and I appreciated all the books I read. I was just reading anything I could get my hands on by an adoptee in the three years I was waiting to finally meet my birth mother and it was every story was interesting every story was different there are themes for sure we we share a common life experience even if the details are different but i wish there were more stories out there because it would say on the one hand this is a big system i, I heard something like two percent of americans which translates to a couple million people have been touched by relinquishment and that could be anonymous donation for donor conceived people or close adoption for adoptees or some um, cases in foster care and it's really a system that we're just beginning to look at. So uh, I'll show you a story that that I was thinking about right at the beginning of COVID. We were down in Washington, D.C., And I suddenly see this golden glowing building across the Washington Mall that I had not seen before. And I was like, wow, we have to go see what that is. Like the sunlight was hitting it at just a perfect angle. It looked almost biblical. And we get there, and it's the African American Museum of History and Culture. I think I got the name right. And what's so interesting about it, it was full of exhibits. And it also has an archive. It's like one of the best curated museums I've ever been to that have the oral history of people that actually lived this system called enslavement. Because as the laws changed and or as people got around the laws and escaped north of the Mason-Dixon line or north of to the Canadian border, there were people there either taking down their story or writing about them. And because of people doing that over a century ago, we have this amazing museum that really relies on a lot of oral history or these written, I'll call them indie published accounts. They didn't have that term back then. That gives us a picture of what it was really like, what that system was really like and we need those numbers. We don't have enough people. So when you talk about publishing, Jennifer, you need to publish and anyone else who's thinking of it needs to publish because we need more stories out there. Everyone's story is different. Everyone's truth is worth hearing. I happen to write fiction because I like writing. I was writing before I was awake enough to be involved in search and reunion. And A lot of my birth family are also professional writers, but you don't need to be that to indie publish and to get your story out there. And kind of another technical issue with publishing is there are so many channels. There is so much social media. There are so many blogs. There are so many websites that need content. I hate the word content. It's an IT term. It's not a literary term that they need stories to tell and adoptees have stories worth telling. You know, and whether you. our state you know whether our state has open records or not we have stories to tell we just more of us need to tell them i think
0: i i agree and thank you for saying that because i think more and more adoptees are stepping up and getting in a writing class or getting some confidence to tell their story and and i agree it can be it can be done like you can move from each step, each phase of it, which is like just writing, you know, you're mm-hmm. a writer when you write. So just writing. Yeah, the,
1: the golden time where you're writing and not working, yeah. worrying
0: about the business of it. That exactly. Time. Just, just getting it on paper or typing it and, and just moving in the direction. Cause I don't know if I ever thought about publishing until I got connected to the adoption community and it was really Reading memoirs like you, I'm picking up memoir after memoir written by an adoptee. And I'm like, yeah, like I remember that really started to encourage me to consider publishing because Mm -hmm. the more stories I read, the more inspired I got, you know, as I'm taking the journey. I wasn't even in reunion yet. Yeah, I agree. I'm glad you said that. So I just appreciate you having this conversation with me and taking the time I hope you'll come back because we could talk at some other things. Oh, I know one more thing. You've curated uh, adoptee literature and materials, haven't you? Yes, I
1: have. (laughs) I put the three years of agony to some good use. (laughs) I read so much, and then I had this idea I was going to write an anthology. I started building what I call virtual bookshelves on Facebook. And actually, Carol Schaefer, who wrote The Other Mother* did something like this first and she was my inspiration. She did mostly, I think, birth mother memoirs, if I'm correct. I wanted everyone in the triad and I wanted fiction because I love reading fiction too. And I did that from about 2014 to 2016 or so, then kind of put it down. But I still read adoption stuff and I still find adoption in all different places. You know, in TV shows and, you know, Netflix, wonderful stuff too. So I've begun building them. There's about 200 books, mostly fiction, because I love fiction. It's what I read that I have up at the link that I sent you. Um, and there's going to be more. Well, I look forward
0: to that. Yeah. And I'm definitely going to sh- put that in the show notes.
1: Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That'd be helpful. Yeah. You were talking about community, and this is what I forgot to mention. There are adoption meeting groups out there, at least two that I know of. I've been lucky because here in northern New Jersey, there's one that's been meeting for years. And I've been a member of it for a couple years. And we get together and it's people who are somehow connected to adoption. So sometimes they're professionals. Sometimes they're, you know, they've been birth parents. I'm an adoptee. There's been adopted parents. And I've taken... That book list and Adoption Knowledge Affiliates book list, some of the books that are often at CPFA's conference, um, which is Concerned People for Adoption, that has an annual conference. They've had, I guess, for 40 years now, an annual conference co-hosted with Rutgers University School of Social Work. And I've taken those three book lists and i put them up on this site. And there's other books as well there.
0: Well, thank you so much. Thanks for talking slow.
1: I get so excited. I think I talk a mile a minute when I talk about
0: adoption. <laughs> <laughs> this has been great our time together. Okay. Ha. Huh. What a pleasure to chat with Suzanne. We can go for hours when we explore some of my favorite meaningful things like writing, storytelling, publishing, and being adoptees with much to say about adoption. She's an expert storyteller through novellas and develops some of her characters based on known people she has met in the adoption community. I like how she keeps her eyes and ears open to who is publishing adoption-related materials. The curation of books by her for others to know what's available is a precious gift to the community. Suzanne and I delved into the topic of synchronicities, which is always an enjoyable experience for me. Her discovery of a biological sister making her transition on the same date as her adopted sister's birthday seems powerfully significant. And what she learned about her biological sister Lisa's health issue played a part in helping her son. That makes me remember what's possible in reunion. Thank you, Suzanne, for having the conversation with me. You are always so willing to engage with others in a manner that seems effortless and fulfilling for all. I hope you know, without a doubt, that you encourage, edify, and uplift me each and every time we talk. If you are an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, please visit JenniferDianeGhostin.com. Thank you so much for being here, and be sure and follow me on Instagram at onceuponatimeinadoptieland.